Well, I'm excited today to get started into the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews is an intriguing piece of the New Testament. There are a lot of things inside of this book that are actually fairly unique to other New Testament epistles. If you spend some time reading some of Paul's letters, if you read Ephesians and Colossians back to back, for instance, they'll have their own character and nature and they'll have their differences and emphases and so forth, but there'll be some things about that them sound familiar because it's the Apostle Paul who writes those two letters. And so when we get to the book of Hebrews, things are just different in a lot of ways. So the book of Hebrews presents us with, I think, some unique challenges in understanding what's being put across to us and some interesting opportunities, even about understanding how all of Scripture is put together. But in the end, the book of Hebrews is a powerful expression of who Jesus is and what it means for us to live lives of faith following Jesus Christ. Let's talk a little bit about the book itself before we start digging into the text so that we can understand some of the context and the point of how this book is written. So to begin with, we are actually not sure who wrote the letter. If you have a study Bible or a commentary on this, that's usually one of the first questions they answer. Well, who wrote this book? And there are several options and possibilities, but we actually don't know. If you go to the other New Testament epistles, if you take one page back to the book of James, he's gonna say James to the church of or Paul to the church of. And so oftentimes in those letters, we have those names at the beginning of those letters. This is me writing to you. We don't have that inside of the book of Hebrews. We don't even have early church tradition that's clear about who wrote the book of Hebrews. So we don't know exactly who did it, but we do know that whoever wrote this letter is actually familiar with Paul and with his missionary team, specifically Timothy. At the very end of the book, the writer of Hebrews is gonna tell this particular church, now don't worry about Timothy, he's been released from prison, and when we can, he and I will come to visit you. The churches in Italy send their greetings to you. So there are some connections to the rest of the early New Testament church that are clear, but we don't know who wrote the letter and we don't know where this church is. But we do know that the author of this letter knows a lot about the New Testament, excuse me, about the Old Testament and how the Old Testament works. So here's one of the things we're gonna get to do throughout this book. We're gonna be able to keep one eye on the Old Testament as we go through all of the book of Hebrews. So it's not just the author of Hebrews who understands the Old Testament well, but it's clearly the audience. This audience had lived in and had been steeped in the Old Testament. So the author is going to use the Old Testament a lot to talk about Jesus, to talk about salvation, to talk about endurance, to talk about our faith in him and on and on. The earliest title that we have for this book, very simple, it's just letter to the Hebrews. And so because of these kinds of characteristics throughout this book, we're gonna end up talking about things like angels, Moses, the law, Joshua, the promised land, priests, the temple, the sacrificial system, and then this dude who shows up once in the Old Testament and shows up a lot in the book of Hebrews by the name of Melchizedek. And if you read Hebrews without knowing the Old Testament, you think, who on earth is Melchizedek? That's a really good question. 
But that's part of what we get to do as we walk through this book. Why did the author pick that? And what's the author's point in talking about all of these things? So the original audience is most likely made up of converted Jews out of Judaism and into Christianity. Thus all of the Old Testament references. And you and I don't know the Old Testament nearly as well as that group of people did. But as we pay attention to it through this book, I think there will even be significant pieces of the Old Testament and the Old Testament story that are actually opened up to us and will make even more sense to us as the author uses them to talk about Jesus Christ. Now, the church itself, we're going to discover by the time that we're done with this that this church was struggling with its own issues. The epistles of the New Testament are always written on specific occasions for specific reasons. They're not just random letters. So the Apostle Paul hears from Timothy or someone else how things are going in Thessalonica or how things are going in Corinth. So then Paul will write a letter and he'll address those issues for that particular place and time. And the book of Hebrews isn't any different than that. By the time especially that we're done, we're going to discover some of the things that this church was struggling with and trying to figure out in their walk with Jesus Christ. We're gonna discover very quickly that this church needed to be reminded of the supremacy, the greatness of Jesus Christ. Now in their world, the world that was filled with pagan deities and pagan religions all around them, it would have been easy to lose sight of the utter and absolute uniqueness of Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews has to remind them of that and of us of that. They needed to be reminded of some of the basic rules for the family of God as well. Don't neglect meeting together. The writer of Hebrews is going to mention this specifically for really good reasons. The writer of Hebrews is going to talk about guidelines to the ethics of a Christian's behavior, of a church's behavior, even how to endure in faith in difficult situations. So this is one of the other things that we learn about this particular church is that they have been suffering persecution as followers of Jesus Christ. In one particular passage, the author will say this. He'll remind them of this in Hebrews chapter 10. But recall the former days. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So when you guys became followers of Jesus Christ, you suffered persecution. Some of you personally, and some of you knew those who were thrown into prison who, who suffered persecution for following Jesus Christ. Now that reminder is right at the very end of Hebrews chapter 10. The next thing that the author does is he writes what we call Hebrews chapter 11. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11 is all about followers of God and of Christ who endured by faith. So here's what they did in, the, in faith following God. Now remember, you guys suffered for your faith. But we follow in the footsteps of so many people who followed God by faith and even they endured through their trials and through their sufferings. So he lists all of these Old Testament characters and what they did by faith, but then he brings us primarily to the author, the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. 
So at the end of Hebrews 11, the author pulls it all together in the first two verses of Hebrews 12, and he says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Guys, ultimately this book is about how much greater Jesus Christ is than all things. So more than anything else, the book of Hebrews will remind us of the greatness of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the greatness of his glory and his majesty and his eternality and his power. And we'll also talk about the perfection of his majestic humility. Jesus just is greater. As we begin reading early on inside of this book, we're gonna start reading things like this. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the priesthood. Jesus is the great once for all sacrifice. He is the only pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, and he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. We learn very quickly in this book how it is that the eternal, all-powerful creator willingly made himself flesh and blood because there's a bunch of rebellious children on this planet who are also flesh and blood. And he did it to save us from our sins and to deliver us from our enemy. It is my prayer that through this study, and as you think of it, I'm gonna encourage you to pray this as well. May it be the case that our minds, our eyes, and our lives are drawn up into this vision of our magnificent Savior, Jesus Christ. How does that sound? Does that sound okay? That sound good? You're supposed to say yes. Yes, awesome. Hebrews chapter one, verse one. The first few verses go like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance, the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God has spoken to his people. So this is how the book of Hebrews begins. The God who exists is a constantly communicating God. The God who exists is a communicating God. There are phrases and moments inside of the New Testament that 
remind us of significant moments inside of the Old Testament. Right at the very beginning, the first phrase of Hebrews chapter one, verse one, we are intended to be reminded of the first phrase of the Bible itself, of Genesis chapter one, verse one. Here it says, long ago, God spoke in many ways and at many times. Genesis chapter one, verse one is ringing in our ears, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Long ago, at the very beginning of things, this is the divine power of God. He created all things. It's not just Hebrews 1.1 that does this. It's the Gospel of John that does this as well. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So long ago, in the very beginning, We get the divine power of God as he creates all things. Long ago in the very beginning, we get the power of the divine nature of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And here we have now again that same kind of idea ringing in our ears that long ago in the very beginning, what we get is divine communication. That's amazing to me. I love the fact that this book opens that way. That from the very beginning, we have this God who is communicating. So these passages are about the the power and the nature and the communication of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 1.1 is about the God who is communicated from the very beginning of all things. I find this beautiful. God finds a lot of ways to communicate with all of humanity and with his children as well. So guys, God communicates in ways that all humans are intended to see and be able to respond to. So God is ever communicating to all of us in general ways. Theologically, we call that general revelation. One of the passages of Scripture that, that states this as clearly as about any other passage of Scripture comes from the Psalms. It's Psalm 19. The first few verses go like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now listen to all the speech communication language. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Everywhere and every when on the face of the planet, the voice of God is heard. Isn't that astounding? That passage of scripture sits over, I think this was a composite picture taken from the Hubble telescope of what's called the Sombrero Galaxy. I love that. The Sombrero Galaxy is 31 million light years away from us. It's 50,000 light years from end to end. It has this gigantic black hole at its heart and has roughly one billion stars inside of it. We know it has roughly one billion stars inside of it because some poor PhD student was assigned to the task of counting everyone. I'm just, I'm joking. It doesn't happen, right? When Psalm 19 was written, David could walk out on a hillside on his roof. He'd look up and he'd see a few stars and he would see a few of the planets and he'd see the moon. And just seeing that, he's in awe. He says, look, all of this is knowledge. All of this is speech being poured out from God to all of us. And part of what's so amazing about this reality 
is that the longer our vision goes, as, as science and technology allows us to see further and further, we see more and more, and we don't grow less amazed at God, we grow more amazed at God. So we do that as our vision moves outward. We do that as our vision moves inward to how the cells inside of the human body work and the information complexity of the DNA. When we learn that thing, those things, we're not less in awe of God, we're more in awe of God. He is constantly communicating. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter one that God has made his invisible qualities visible and we are without excuse. In many times and in many ways, God has been speaking. God has been communicating. So he speaks in these ways that all of us can see and respond to. And then the writer of Hebrews even says that he speaks to his people through his prophets. God speaks specifically through specific words and specific moments and specific individuals. And whereas that general revelation speaks to everyone, what we call specific revelation comes to us through God's word, through his mouthpieces here on earth. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the call of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah is a very young man, God shows up and he tells this to Jeremiah in chapter one, verse five. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I made you to speak to the nations, to speak my word to the people of God and to everyone else you come in contact with. This is specific revelation. And when you read through the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and on and on the story goes, when you read through that, you're reading that specific revelation as God communicates. As his prophets are put in positions where they they orally speak the word of God to anyone who will listen, where they write down letters and send them to priests and kings and so forth so that the word of God is written down and specifically revealed. They sometimes act out parables. That happens with Jeremiah and it happens with poor Ezekiel over and over again. He's asked to act out the voice of God to the people of God. God even at one point uses a donkey. And this morning, he's probably still using donkeys to say something specific to the people of God. God's communication to us is a gift. It is what we call a grace. God's communication to us is a gift. Now, look at it like this. We think of the salvation of God as a gift that he gives us because it is. We can't concoct it, we can't attain it, we can't make it happen, so God gives it as a gift to his people. His communication is also a gift to his people. You see, without God's gift of salvation, we would never be able to be in right relationship with him. And by the same token, without his gift of communication to us, we would never know him. So God, in general senses and in specific senses, speaks. It should amaze us every now and then that the God of all time and space, the God who has actually counted every one of those stars in the Sombrero Galaxy and can hold all of creation in the palm of his hand, has decided to make it so that you and I can hear him. 
that he communicates. So we can even communicate back and forth with that God. Long ago and in many ways, God has been speaking. And he speaks to his people through his prophets. But now in the last days, he speaks to us through his son, the writer says. With all of that communication, the writer of Hebrews wants to make sure we know this, that the pinnacle of God's communication is Jesus Christ. All of that is brought together in Jesus Christ. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the text says. These first few phrases of the book of Hebrews, it validates the Old Testament as God's communication to his people. But now what we're doing is we're understanding that that needs a conclusion, that needs a consummation, that needs a final explanation of what all of that is about, and all of that happens in Jesus Christ. So the Son is the clearest communication about about the Father and His nature and His plan. The Word of God, the Scriptures, are about as clear as things can get to us as we read and as we understand. We can even learn the original languages in which this thing was written so that we can get to maybe a closer sense of what was actually written. But all of this is not about this. All of this is about Him. It's sending us to Jesus Christ. And guys, this communication that God gives us about Him and And what we see in Christ, it is rich and it is powerful. Guys, it is deep waters how God speaks to us. And it is enough for any human being to hear and to read and to learn and to discover that we can forever learn more and never reach the end of God's Son, Jesus Christ. We can never reach the end who he is. We can never reach the end of the beauty and the depth of how God communicates to us through his son, Jesus Christ. It is one of the lies of every age that we have gotten past Jesus. And it takes all kinds of different shapes and forms. It has all kinds of different reasons attached to it. But because of our technological advancement, because of what we know now because of science and math, because of what we know now in our sociological and, 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 and psychological and political developments and so forth, we no longer need this Jesus thing because we've got it all figured out. Guys, we will never get past Jesus. We will never get to the end of Jesus and need more. We never will. Guys, here's part of the beauty of what happens. As we actually get to know Jesus Christ, and as I've walked through this, it's the kind of thing that that stirs inside of me my own desires. This is what I want. Sometimes I taste this, sometimes I don't, but I want this. And I want you to want this, to know what this is like. Guys, the more you know about Jesus, the bigger he gets. You're not exploring the final room of your knowledge of who Jesus is. And when you're done with that room, you can shut the door and you're done. That doesn't happen. The more we know about Jesus, the bigger he gets. The more grace I receive from him, the more I know I need. That's incredible. The more of his presence you have, the more you want to have. 
The more you know about God's word in scripture, the more you learn about Jesus Christ. This is part of the beauty of God's communication in his son Christ and what it is for us to get to know him. And guys, this is also true. The more of him that I have, the less I want anything else. The more I taste of Jesus Christ, the more the falsehoods taste like dust in my mouth. The more I want to get rid of those things, and the more I want to know Jesus Christ. So here's what the author does very quickly. In just the next few phrases of the next couple of verses, as he begins to list some of the divine traits of Jesus Christ, his character traits, his divine nature, some of these things are what we call his perfections. He holds these things in perfection, and only Jesus does, only God does. Now, some of the things that are introduced to us in these few verses that we just read will come back to us in the rest of the book. Some of this is a little bit like a table of contents. So this thought I'm gonna come back to and we're gonna develop this. And this thought I'm really gonna spend some time on. So the book will come back to some of these as it unfolds. And some of it is just an attempt to explain how Jesus is God's communication to us about him and who he is. So here's part of what the writer of Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. As the son of God, Jesus is the only rightful heir to all of humanity and to all of creation. All of cosmic history and all of human history is inevitably making its way to Jesus Christ. When we think of heirs and we think of inheritance, we think of official pieces of paper, wills and deeds and trusts and so forth that are passed from uh, one family member to another, from parents to children and so on and so forth. And as that will is read, only some of those inheritors are, willing, are, are able, legally able to take what is given to them inside of that will. We have this really dramatic moment that is a divine reading of the will, so to speak, and it happens in the book of Revelation, chapter five. And John the Revelator's there standing before the throne of God and what he is seeing is just absolutely overwhelming to him. But one of the things he sees specifically is this scroll that's brought out before the throne. And the scroll has these seven seals and it's announced, can anyone who is worthy come and take this scroll and begin to open it up? Who's the rightful heir who can take this deed to all of creation? And it says there in Revelation 5 that no one was able to do it. Nobody was the rightful heir to that. And it says that John began to weep because no one could do this. And a divine being walks up next to John and puts his arm around him and says, don't worry, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's worthy to unroll the scroll. And so John picks up his eyes and he turns and he sees coming from the throne of God a lamb as it has been slain. Jesus is the rightful heir to all things, and he takes the deed of all creation, and he begins to unseal every one of those seals on that scroll. The cross of Jesus Christ 
his resurrection from the dead, seals his rightful place as the one who is the inheritor of all things. It's not just this dramatic scene in Revelation chapter five. The writer of Hebrews is reminding us of things inside of the Old Testament as well. This story is in Psalm chapter two. In verses seven and eight, it goes like this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. This is an important perspective for you and me. History does not belong to any human ideology or human empire or nation. History doesn't belong to any of them. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And every ideology and every human being and every empire who pretends to be the end of history who will fix all things is nothing but a usurper of the one divine heir of all things, and that is Jesus Christ. And oftentimes when human empires do that, they become violent and destructive usurpers. They're dangerous. So guys, no matter what humans do, no matter what humans think they can do, all of history is aimed straight for Jesus Christ. He's been appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The word used for world there, some of your translations will use a word like universe. It's the Greek word that's used to talk about both time and space. And isn't it cool that we know now that those things are inseparable? That Jesus has created all of these things. Jesus is our creator. And is fully understood as completely God. He is the creator of all things. Again, John chapter one, those first three verses. We read the first verse, but here's the rest of the context. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I love sometimes how these phrasings work. Everything was made by him. And just in case you don't get that, not anything that wasn't made was not made by him as well, right? (laughs) There's not anything that is made that wasn't made by him. Nothing. That's incredible. Through whom also he created the world. And then we get these paraphrases that that are stuck together next inside of these verses. He is the radiance, the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. Every now and then there are phrases that sort of are given to us and it's it's a lot of fun to dig through them and expand on them and to research them and walk them through scripture. And sometimes there are phrases that hit me as the kinds of phrases that what we should really do with these things is just let them soak in our prayer and in our spirit. Let them soak in our understanding of Jesus Christ. Because he puts these two images together to try to explain to us who Jesus is as the perfect communication from the Father to us. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is a word that you would use to talk about the rays that emanate from the sun. He's the radiance, the rays of the source itself that reach us. He is the exact imprint. 
You would use this phrase to talk about an impression on a coin. I look at a coin and I know who this person is because I see the impression of this face. Or the impression of the signet ring of a king or a queen who would place that inside of a seal of wax. And so it's not just their seal, but it's their authority as well that comes with that. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So in Jesus Christ, we see the glory and the nature of God. Christmas is not that far in the rearview mirror for us. And we spent time with this notion. The full glory of God is in Jesus Christ because he is fully God in flesh. He was, as the angel told Joseph, Emmanuel. He is God with us. It's incredible. So guys, the glory that is in the Father is completely in the Son. Know that the glory that is in the Father is completely in the Son. God's very nature is shown to us in Jesus Christ. Everything from his righteousness and majesty and power to his humility and his mercy and his forgiveness we see in Jesus Christ. The next part of the text tells us this, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, the creator, is not the divine first mover or the divine watchmaker in this sense. It has been popular through the ages to to believe that a deity exists, a small g God exists, but what that God is is just kind of the first mover. He He hit the start button and then everything just went, you know, the universe gets created and he just steps back, hands off, and just lets things unfurl. Or he is the divine watchmaker, and sometimes the way that that is used is that at the very beginning of all things, he just winds it up and sets it down and lets it go. But the actual God who exists and who is revealed to us in Scripture is not that God. He is a God who upholds all things with the word of his power. He is intimately involved with his creation, with his children, and with humanity. God is involved in the workings of all things. So the writer of Hebrews uses this phrase, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Paul puts it like this in Colossians chapter one, right at the beginning of this magnificent hymn about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in Colossians one, he says this, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now this is a cool thought. This this is something cool for us to affirm and to understand as followers of Jesus Christ, that Jesus holds the universe together. How does that work? What on earth does that mean? When we ask questions like, well, what's holding all of this stuff, this physical stuff together? There are actually physical answers to that question. There are certain kinds of forces in this world that we know and can even mathematically explain. We can say this is how atoms hold together and this is how molecules hold together and this is how the solar system doesn't spin off of its axis and everything sort of holds together in that sense. We can actually do the math to describe the physical properties of this universe that holds things together. Some of us in this room, not us, some of you in this room are actually rocket scientists. You could do the orbital mechanics for us to tell us how this works. That's all amazing, it's miraculous, it's incredible that we can describe the physical pieces of the universe like that. The mistake usually happens in the next phrase. 
Because we can do the math, because we can do the chemical equations, we no longer need to talk about God. So into that kind of universe, the Christian walks up and says, Jesus Christ holds the universe together. How can we make sense of that? Well, imagine, if you would, a piece of pottery that sits on my shelf at home and that piece of pottery gets knocked off and hits the floor and breaks into two parts. I pick that thing up and I put it together inside of my hands and I'm holding it there like this. We can ask the question, well, what's holding that piece of pottery together? Well, we could actually talk in terms of of pressure. We could talk in terms of friction and of shear forces. We could probably actually do some math and tell you, that's kind of what's holding that piece of pottery together. We can ask the question again, well, what's holding that piece of pottery together? We can also say, Phil is holding that piece of pottery together. Are those two answers mutually exclusive? They're not. Does the first answer in terms of pressure and mechanics and engineering and math exclude Phil? It doesn't. In fact, because Phil has the desire to hold that piece of pottery together, and I happen to have just enough power to be able to hold that piece of pottery together, that's what makes all the physical forces work to hold that piece of pottery together. Now take the universe. I don't have the power to hold that together. I can't make everything work in the right way to hold that together. So it takes someone like God. It takes Jesus Christ to hold the universe together. And all of those physical explanations are true, but they're part and parcel of the one who has the will and the power to hold everything together. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Then the author of Hebrews, again, just quickly moving through all of these attributes of Jesus Christ, says, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We learn quickly that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was the final a necessary step that assures our salvation. The possibility of right relationship with God is secured by Jesus Christ on the cross and his victory over death and resurrection from the grave. Now here's one of those places where the author very quickly in the book of Hebrews, is going to take this notion, he's going to expand on it, and he's going to talk about why this is such a big deal and how this works and how it is that the Old Testament points us to this moment. So the author is going to talk about why the sacrificial system existed, how the sacrificial system worked and with the priests and the sacrifices in the temple, but also why it was never complete, why it could never in the end do what you and I needed done. So here's one of these places where we're going to discover that the Old Testament leads us straight to the necessity of Jesus Christ. The necessity of the once for all final perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he uses an image here that he uses at least three times throughout this book. That once Jesus made the sacrifice for our sins, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we'll get to talk about how that works in the book of Hebrews. 
But in a nutshell, what it is, is it's final, and at the right hand of the majesty on high, he has the authority now that he needs. It's the final sacrifice that makes all of this possible. It's complete. So he makes purification for sins. And then it says in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the writer begins down this path. It's going to take up the rest of chapter 1. That Jesus is superior to the angels. Well, what does that mean? Come back next week and we'll talk about what that means. But here's where the theme begins explicitly that carries us through the rest of this book and then into our faith in Jesus Christ and then into what it means for you and I to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus is just greater than everything, even angels. Jesus is greater than that. He just is greater than, and it makes a difference for us. This isn't just some disconnected notion that we can affirm and walk away and say, yes, I believe that. This is the kind of notion that makes a difference for us and the way that we do things. Every one of the epistles has this sort of pivot moment inside of it where the author has been talking about the, the doctrinal issues, the theological issues, the, the, the descriptions of who God is and what he does and who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit is. And then there comes this moment in the epistle where the, where the writer is gonna say, so here's now how you live as a result of all of that. And it's usually at this moment where the writer is gonna say, therefore, <laughs> because all of that is true, now here's what our lives begin to look like. We've read that pivot point in the, right, in the book of Hebrews, and I want to read it again so that we can pick it up. In Hebrews chapter 12, the first two verses, it goes like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Now notice the here's how we live now kind of language. And the sin which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because all of this is true, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Our eyes and our hearts and our habits our feelings, our thoughts, our creativity. They tend to be trained, fixated on all kinds of things that are just no good for us. Drop them, the writer says, and look to Jesus. We are sometimes occupied with things that are good things but are not the ultimate thing in life. Look to Jesus first. And then we put everything else in its place. Our emotions, our relationships need healing and need guidance, and we find that when we look to Jesus. Our minds and our creativity and our labor needs to be on fire for God in a broken world, and we find that when we look to Jesus. And we need a Savior, a Savior for our souls, 
and a guide for our lives. And we find that when we look to Jesus, the one who is greater than everything. Let's pray.